and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty along with my brother Brian. We're going to be talking about manure management on our show today. There's a lot of cool things happening in terms of uh, different techniques and different products that are being used in manure management. It's been interesting watching some of those developments as we're a farm that does use some manure. We've got a neighboring dairy operation. We've had chicken litter on the farm this year. We've uh, used quite a bit of compost. It's something that we're really, really interested in and really concerned about because we're not very far outside of town. And so we get a lot of questions about that and certainly have a lot of neighbors that we want to get along with too. So be fun uh, learning a little bit for our own farm and hopefully uh, you can participate in the conversation as well. You can give us a call at 844-44-AG-PHD if you'd like to share what's working around your farm operation or if you have any agronomic questions. You can also email us radio at agphd.com or find us on Twitter, AgPhD Media, Brian Hefty or Darren Hefty. Right, manure management today, Brian. Now, you want to start with that, or you got another thing in mind? Well, when it comes to manure management, I would say the one of the biggest topics is really the smell. And <laughs> I, I tell this story quite often. So when we were growing up on the farm, Darren and I were in charge of the hogs, and our dad was in charge of the cattle. Now, really, he was in charge of everything, but he put us in charge of the hogs, and uh, every day we had hog chores, every morning, every night. And when you drove into our farm, you smelled the livestock. And, of course, our dad, just like everybody back in that era, used to say, well, that's the smell of money, boys. And I always tell people, nope, you got it all wrong. That is the smell of lost money. The point is what you're smelling in a lot of cases may be nitrogen. You smell ammonia, that's nitrogen. And when you're smelling that... It's going up in the air. Where I'd rather have it is in my soil. So there are biological products that can be used today to help sequester or help, uh, let's see, how can I say this, help uh, hold that nitrogen in the manure so you have more time until it's lost. And hopefully during that time, you can get it down into the soil. That's great. We really encourage you, don't just lay your manure or compost or whatever it is on the soil surface as much as you can. Try to get it down into the ground so it's not only uh, a little better protected from loss, but also so it's where the crop actually needs it, down in the ground where the roots are. I mean, managing that odor... You can look at it one of two ways. Either it's all about the neighbors and you're concerned about your neighbors complaining about the smell, or you say, hey, I want those dollars in my field instead of going up into the air. So I'd say that's the biggest thing. The, the second topic that we get the most questions about when it comes to manure really has to do with the nutrients. We are seeing many more regulations in terms in terms of nutrients and overloading nutrients in certain soils, we obviously have to be real careful with leachable nutrients like nitrogen and sulfur. Nitrogen especially, that can be a water quality issue if you way overdo it, and you have leaching. With phosphorus, leaching is not the concern. And phosphorus is the number one water quality issue we have in the United States, and I believe it's number one in Canada as well. The problem with phosphorus it gets into the water not because of leaching, but because of soil erosion. So 
you've got a couple choices there when it comes to phosphorus, and it's the same types of things we talk about just with manure in general. First of all, we want it down in the ground, so then it's protected. And secondly, we want to reduce erosion, just like every farmer out there. I mean, if you reduce erosion, you save your soil. That's awesome, because think about what erodes. That top quarter inch of soil is your most valuable soil you've got in a lot of cases. So we want to save that out in the field. How do you save it? Number one, you reduce tillage. Number two, you put tile in the ground. Those are the top two methods proven by universities for the last century to reduce erosion. So reduce your tillage, at least in areas. I'm not saying you have to go no-till on the whole farm, but at least in areas where you've got more hills, in areas where you're near a lake, river, stream, whatever it is, reduce your tillage there and then put tile on the ground and you will dramatically reduce your erosion if you do those two things. That That is a big deal. And I was amazed, Brian, at the collegiate workshop, just how many of the college students that were there we're talking about that discussion and actively working on that at home. Talk to a number Wait, of students. Stop, stop. What Talking about what discussion? The, well, just what you were, were talking about here with erosion and with drainage. And uh, I, I just they talked had to, questions about reducing erosion? Yeah, I talked to a number of students that, that commented that, you know what, we had some serious erosion issues with all the rains that we had this year. And there were a number of them that said, we're working on tile. Talk to us about that, about how we're going to solve that and, and how they're going to work hand in hand. And I think sometimes you think about those two things as separate issues, but they really end up being the same. When that ground is full of moisture and can't take on any more, all that water is running off the top. It's going to create erosion. So it, it is necessarily going to make a big difference. Sure, no-till will make a big difference too. No question about that. I'm not downgrading that at all. But but getting that tile in the ground in those areas is really, really important. And the other thing that was a, was a neat comment too was, hey, you know, we uh, had just done tiling through valleys on our farm and we started going up the side hills because we were having some issues uh, especially in 2018 with moisture on the side hills. And they said, boy, that made a huge difference in 2019. We didn't have those issues anymore. And I think that's one of the things in drier country that, that we've noticed that probably the most common problem with tiling is guys stopped too soon and they didn't keep going up those side hills. Okay, to finish up in our opening time here, in terms of manure management, I would also say test your manure and test your soils. What we very commonly see is fields that are getting good yields, but they could have great yields for the level of P and K and some of the other nutrients that are out there. Why are we not getting 300? Why are we only getting 250 on corn? Just as an example, well, it might be one nutrient. It might be manganese. It might be zinc. There might be one last thing you need to fix on your farm. Everything else is fantastic. So test your manure, test your soil. Talking about manure management on today's Ag PhD radio show. Stay tuned. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. 
Vellum is Rotam North America's Mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic insecticides from Atticus, LLC. Unwanted insects are a nuisance, but they're no match for Serpent from Atticus. Serpent delivers economical, fast-acting, broad-spectrum control to help your corn, soybeans, and wheat crops thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. Every farmer knows that in order to be profitable, you need to maximize the return on your crop input investments. Hi, I'm Scott Harms, an agrist specialist with Grain PhD. Without an effective and flexible strategy, your grain marketing plan gets stuck in the mud. With Grain PhD, you get the clarity and guidance a solid marketing plan needs. Our free GrainBridge software simplifies your cost-profit analysis, and our risk specialists are here to help you develop your plan. Sign up today at GrainPhD.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. Yeah, we're talking about manure management on the show, and I'm, I'm still riding pretty high after yesterday's Ag PhD Collegiate Agronomy Workshop. A lot of great people there, a lot of really exciting young people coming into agriculture, coming into uh, production agriculture. Talked to a number of them that had livestock operations at home, uh, and I know this manure management topic is something that's going to gonna hit home for a lot of those folks. Uh, also, the other thing that came up yesterday, we, we got talking about grain marketing a little bit and some of the trade deals. There's a lot of interest in that. Uh, I got our friend Scott Harms on right now with Grain PhD. Scott, thanks for joining us. Hey, Darren. Uh, one of the things that came up yesterday, Scott, since since the trade deal's been announced, there have been some swings in the market, uh, but a lot of the students were really surprised there's been kind of a disappointing trade, especially in soybeans, wondering what your uh, take is on this price action. Yeah, it's been overall, I think, a disappointment. Even the day that it was announced, uh, the market sold off, and uh, we had a, a big price move on Friday, on Thursday, in downside in corn and the upside on Friday, and that was, uh, you know, kind of erased all those losses on Friday. But um, the uh, uh, on the soybean side, we haven't seen, uh, it's been really steady to down since then. And the, really the main thing you can point to, it, I think the market was just disappointed in some of the terminology, mainly um, the fact that the these purchases are going to be made on based on market conditions. I don't know that the market should really be that surprised. China still has the right to buy based off of uh fundamentals and where the cheapest uh, uh, business is, but uh, we haven't seen any fresh sales. I think that was the other probably disappointment. We thought in the trade there was a sentiment that uh, we would initially see some new sales on the books, and we just can't seem to shake. Uh, The other thing, we just can't seem to shake this negative attitude towards uh, those that believe that this trade deal will not get accomplished, it will not these number now that it's signed that we won't be able to meet these numbers, and that the increase of thirty-two billion dollars uh, in purchases over the next two years of ag products is something that's not achievable. And um, the fact of the matter is that will be difficult to get. 
but any increase is important. Getting on the same playing field and getting these tariffs off uh, and making us more competitive in the world, even if we are subject to, you know, standard market conditions, um, is it's it should be a big boost. And then they do have an obligation to buy. The market also, you know, has been hit uh, here today. I think one of the things in the negative trade is the coronavirus uh, announcement today uh, that's affecting people in China. There's a case of it here in the U.S. apparently as well. And immediately you look to see what does that mean for the bean market? What does it mean for the economy? And uh, the last time we had an issue in this area, the SARS virus hit 2003. Their GDP dropped 3%. And that, you know, could be a, a little bit of a stumbling block. But the bottom line is there are supportive fundamentals for beans. This is not an area where anybody needs to panic. I think we just need to work through this. The Lunar New Year starts for China on Friday or, I think it's, or Saturday. We expect some purchases to happen before that. Uh, so we, we really, really do expect some purchase announcements uh, coming later this week and look for the market to uh, support. But there are some good fundamentals for beans. Um, and now that we're on the level playing field, uh, look for those conditions to be even tighter. It's all going to go down to weather, but um, you know I think we're at the point now where we're getting close to being undervalued. You know, the one market that that's been a leader on the upside has been the wheat. So what's been going on? What's been the catalyst in this wheat market? We just don't like to plant wheat in the U.S. Apparently, um, you know we're you know the we're going to plant the least amount of wheat we have in over a hundred years of this year and. And, um, you know, for a lot of different reasons, I suppose, um, people have gotten away from the wheat uh, situation. But I think it's starting to catch up with us a little bit. We have plenty of wheat in the world overall. We continue to, you know, that's a market that um, just always seems to be there. Uh, but now that we're tightening up our own domestic balance sheet, the soft red winter wheat uh, uh, carryover estimate uh, or stocks is the tightest it's been in 10 years. And, um, you know, we've got some condition problems in Kansas City wheat based on the latest condition reports. Um, I think part of this rally, a big part of the rally has been this the potential new agreement with China and then the, ultimately the agreement with China. China purchases about 3 to 4 million metric tons of wheat they import uh, each year uh, from around the world. That's expected to double this year. And uh, with some of the other problems that are going on around the world, Australia's production was down. The French markets, um, you know, they're in a labor dispute. Uh, Russian farmers are being tight holders. So it's a lot of little things that are helping to add to this price strength. But, you know, wheat prices continue to surge, and we haven't hurt our demand at all. Exports continue to be strong. So we are staying competitive. We're getting close to a point where we won't uh, be – we'll actually be going above the Australian wheat prices. So, But I do expect this to stay firm. Uh, if China comes in and buys wheat, they're going to buy Kansas City wheat. So it makes it that much more – that hard-run wheat crop. They're gonna, it makes it that much more important that we have a big crop this year. And So I look for uh, wheat prices to, to stay firm. Um, unless something else happens in the world. And, you know, it's very possible that if we have any kind of blip on the production side of it this spring, um, you know, we really could see a pretty hot uh, wheat market, and that should also help support uh, corn values. Excellent. I like the sound of that. And, you know, we've all been waiting for this trade deal to get done. What's the next thing, Scott? What else should we be watching for? Yeah, getting the the trade deal done was huge for the markets, Uh, even though we haven't seen – you know, an initial impact, but getting on that level playing field with South America and then other countries uh, is huge as we move forward. Uh, I think the key the key going forward, and it always has a key, but I think it's going to be more key now, 
uh, is the value of the U.S. dollar. You know, we've got the, all these supplies all across the world, and we know, you know, China's got to go shopping, and and uh, they're going to shop where they get the best value. Our currency has been so strong relative to other uh, countries, especially South America. You know, they're going to, um, you know, they're going to buy from us based on their agreement, but they're going to buy more from us if we get the value of the dollar to to dip a little bit against other countries in the world. There was there was one report I saw over the weekend uh, where they thought that it was suggested that China may actually try to manipulate the value of their currency higher, the yuan, um, and try to make it easier to meet these uh, pricing obligations, these purchase obligations from the U.S. Now, I don't know if that's, you know, if that's really possible or if it's something that, that they would do because it would hurt their exports. But if they did do that, that would certainly be something that would be very constructive. That would be huge. The value of, of the U.S. dollar is kind of the key driver here now. Um, there are some economists that think that we're ready for a dip. If that were to occur, that's going to be bullish for all commodities. Okay. Value of the U.S. dollar will be the next thing to watch. Yeah, you know, I, I'm just – Thinking about this, we've been waiting so long for these trade deals, and it's been anytime anybody asks about, well, what's going on? Well, we're waiting to see how these trade deals work out. And in the meantime, uh, a lot of growers that have got targets set, maybe they haven't been able to quite reach those targets. And the question has gotten to be, well, how do we adjust? How do we adjust those market plans? Uh, how do we get ready so we can take action when the right time comes about? Yeah, you, you, you've heard us say a million times and other people say all the time, have a plan, have a plan, have a plan. That, there's there's merit to that. There's there's It's important to have that because when markets get emotional uh, and start uh, rolling one way or the other is when decisions, bad decisions get made, quick, impromptu decisions. So having a plan is important, but having a plan based on price first, but then also having a, par- a plan based on time uh, second are both key components. So you know, based on what we see today and where we're at and, and uh, what we've gone through and what we hope to, we will see here moving forward, if the right things happen, we think you can be patient and you know, wait for the market to come to you. So identify those targets, have those in place above the market, but, you know, as you need to have a function of time in the plan as well. And now that's everyone's schedule is going to be a little bit different. But, for example, you know, we get to March 1st and your target is to sell uh, new crop corn at 410 uh, 420 and 430. And, um, you know, we get to the 1st of March and we're not there yet. Well, you need to start making some sales, um, you know, to at least alleviate the pressure in case these levels don't get seen. So you, maybe you, maybe the part of your, you write into part of your marketing plan is to take some of those sales that you're offering at 430. If we get to March 1st and you don't have those sales booked, then you start moving the 430 down to the market. And, but you need to have a function of time in a marketing plan just as, uh, as important as having a function of price. Very good information. We've been talking with Scott Harms with Grain PhD. Scott, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. All right. Have a, have a great week. You bet. You as well. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. White mold, sudden death syndrome, root rot. If you raise soybeans, it may seem like you have all the cards stacked against you when it comes to disease. But did you know there is a new cost-effective seed treatment which can help prevent all three? Heads Up Seed Treatment offers a new proactive approach for dealing with fungal and bacterial diseases. Compatible with other seed treatments, hedge your bet against disease this spring. Ask your dealer for Heads Up today. To locate a dealer, visit headsupst.com. 
you know a healthy crop is required for your best results. Simply put, balanced crop nutrition pays. AgriLiquid Fertilizers have the research, technology, and products to deliver those results. We also have an outstanding team of field agronomists ready to help you with your fertility decisions. AgriLiquid can help you maximize your yield potential effectively and economically. Visit agroliquid.com to find a dealer near you. As your corn crop grows and the ear begins to form, potassium is at a high demand, almost as high as nitrogen. The same is true for soybeans with similar high demands of potassium during pod fill. Don't fall behind and ensure your crop is getting its potassium with Catalyst. Catalyst by Actigrow has been shown to be the best at entering the leaf when compared to other leading potassium products. Visit k-supercharged.com for more information. If you're a rancher who's obsessed with keeping your pastures clear, turn to Grace on Next Herbicide. It offers superior broadleaf weed control, so instead of thinking about weeds, you can think about the money you'll save growing more grass and buying less feed. Used early in the season, Grazon Next also provides residual activity that controls newly emerged weed seedlings, giving you season-long control. Start enhancing your land while you protect it. Visit leavetheweedstoz.com to learn more about Grazon Next. Always read and follow label directions. What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce Herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm the fall of 2014. We've seen many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, able to reduce our fertilizer side, so it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Our topic is manure management, and our phone lines are open throughout the show. If you'd like to join the discussion, it's 844-44-AG-PHD. Going to head to Ohio right now. I've got Glenn Arnold with us. He's a nutrient management specialist for Ohio State University. Glenn, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. You know what? I bet you're glad 2019 is over as well. You guys in Ohio had a tough year. Yes, um, it was easily the uh, latest spring that we've ever had for planting purposes. And uh, combine the uh, wet spring with the wet fall we had in the late, late 2018 made for um, overflowing manure storage structures throughout the state. You know, we had more growers talk to us about in-season manure application. Uh, do, do a lot of growers in Ohio do that? Uh, not a large number. That's an area that we've put a lot of time and effort and research in research in the last few years, uh, using liquid manure to side dress corn. And um, it's worked well. There's been a, a lot of interest in it, but it does take time to, uh, to put the equipment together to to uh, figure out ways to utilize it. So even though I think it will be adopted uh, widely as the years go on, 
it just takes a while to get up and going. Yeah, it's it's a little bit more work at a time when you may not have a lot of time for doing that. That's what I love doing uh, manure applications after harvest uh, or early spring mm-hmm. if we happen to get a spring that's conducive for that. I'm not sure if this next year is going to be that way. Did growers get their, their uh, lagoons and pits emptied last fall in Ohio? Yeah, for the most part, we had a reasonably good uh, fall. We had so much in northwest Ohio. We had so much preventive plant acreage. So we had a lot of fields available um, throughout the summer until uh, until cover crops were established to get a lot of manure out. So there were a lot of manure went out in uh, July and August when we typically wouldn't uh, have uh, openings for that. So it did make it a lot easier as uh, commercial applicators went, went around in uh, October and November to finish out. And I'm not aware of very many uh, livestock producers that uh, did not get uh, pumped down pretty nicely. You know, one of the things uh, that I've really enjoyed reading, Glenn, is some of the work that you've been doing on just replacing commercial fertilizer with liquid and other sources of manure. I I think for our farm, that's been a big deal for us. It saved us some money. We feel like there's been a performance advantage as well. What are you seeing uh, with trying to replace uh, commercial fertilizer with manure? What kind of results have you had? and, And what's been the response from growers that you're working with? Well, primarily we're trying to capture that ammonia nitrogen. Um, most of your swine manures are, uh, you know, have um, about half the value of the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potash in swine manures in that nitrogen form. And then most of that nitrogen is in the ammonium form, which is readily available for crop production. So what we've been doing is we've been taking about 6,000 gallons of uh, swine finishing manure and side dressing corn with that using drag hoses, and it's worked pretty well for us. We've also done with some with dairy manure. We've done some with sow manure and even uh, swine nursery manure. So we've tried lots of different ways to go about it. And as long as we uh, put on the adequate amount of nitrogen we need to grow the corn, then the manure is an excellent substitute for uh, commercial fertilizer. You know, it's not without challenges. I know on our farm, one of the things that we've done is is not put on the full load uh, of manure and not try to meet all of our needs. We've supplemented with a little bit of commercial fertilizer to try to even uh-huh. any, uh, uh, well, unevenness in our spread or whatnot. Uh, do right, you see a lot right. of growers that have issues with that? Is that a common practice as well? Well, I think that... Um a more common issue has been a lot of people not giving credit to the manure for for the nutrients that are in there and and then over applying oh, their, sure. their uh, purpose sure. fertilizers. That's probably the biggest thing we've had to overcome, just the uh, mentality that we're going to throw that manure out in the fall and not uh, not worry about it too much. So we think there's a lot of room to tighten up the belt and get a little bit better at it. And then as we deal with water quality issues, uh, especially in the state of Ohio and the Northwest, we know we're going to have to do a better job with uh, utilization of manure. So, you know, as we um, add more livestock facilities, as commercial manure applicators get stretched really thin, uh, I think, you know, if we can give them uh, windows of time in uh, May and June to be on fields to apply manure, uh, we think that's time well spent. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm I'm really excited about seeing how how your research data comes out. If you haven't read anything that Glenn Arnold at Ohio State's put out there, you need to check him out online. They've got some great studies going on, really valuable information for the industry. Glenn, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Glad to be here. Thank you. Let's head over to Indiana. We've got Jason with us right now. Jason, how are you today? Great. How are you? 
We're doing quite well. Uh, you know, when you think about uh, manure management, of course, uh, Glenn's up in Ohio. Uh, what are, what kind of things are you running into over in Indiana? Has this gone smooth for you the last couple of years? You guys kind of struggled with some of the wet weather, too. Yeah, we we really had a time this spring that we were normally wet, and uh, uh, we had to pull the trigger when it was too wet out in the field and had some issues to just buy enough time to make it to this fall. You know, Glenn was talking about uh, how you're starting to see some growers and they're doing some work on in-season applications like May and June trying to get out there. I know it's not uh, not a great thing when you're super wet already and soggy like we were last spring. Is that anything that you've tried before? Yeah, ideally on our corn, we'd like to do it ahead of it uh, as, as close as four or five days. With the drag line, we found that, like you were saying, cut your rate down to even 3,500 or 4,000 gallons. And if, if it turns out dry, that might be all that we apply, and we can always come back kind of wide drop. Sure. And uh, if you can get over some of the aesthetics, you know, you might get a little wide here and have a couple missed spots, but it's normally not going to hit your pocketbook as hard as, you know, worrying about it just being perfect, just kind of let the manure do its thing. You know, when when you think about that, you're exactly right. It comes down to, to making money, and sometimes uh, it may not look the prettiest or smell the prettiest out there, uh, <laughs> but but if a guy can be profitable with it and, and be really on top of uh, managing those nutrients, like you were talking about, hey, we're not going to overdo it here, and I know that was, was a point we had discussed earlier. We want to make sure we're not, not overdoing it and give enough credit for, for what we're getting out of that manure. Uh, you know, when mm-hmm. you look at your program, is this something that you're putting on the same fields every year, trying to feed each crop that you do? Is it something that you're rotating acres uh, that you don't have enough uh, manure to fit the whole farm? What, what's your typical game plan? Well, it's changed quite a bit. Uh, we've just we just continue to build barns on our farm. We've put two quads up in the last five years, so you start dividing five million gallons instead of one or two like we were accustomed to it it becomes to where we're continuously putting manure on the same acres we can just drag the umbilical cord about on about 1300 acres so we're getting about every year and starting to try to look at some different things as far as uh going to some wheat and cover crops uh and some relay cropping on on the fall applications instead of just going corn 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 uh just trying a few things here and there yeah, absolutely. I know uh, a lot of growers you've talked to have, have incorporated uh, alfalfa into the operation, trying to use up some of the P and K that, that they're putting out there. And it's an interesting concept of, hey, you know what? I've got more nutrients. I can raise more crop here. And maybe that's a second crop, like a, like a cover crop, for example, that, that you could graze or bale. Um, I, I think there's a lot of different ways that, that a grower could do this. You've been adding more barns, so it must be must be working for you. Yeah, yeah, we're we're actually working on a project about uh, taking people's excess manure and making some value-added products with it because we see this problem happening. Uh, we would love to put barns on other farms, but it just, you know, you could blame the neighbors or whatever, but it's kind of just pushing to where only a few counties are producing barns and kind of having a distribution problem from our phosphorus standpoint. 
Yeah, yeah, that's definitely an issue. I know we had touched on that with uh, Glenn Arnold in Ohio as well. Uh, well, Jason, really, really appreciate getting the chance to talk to you today. Uh, I heard you on the Shark Farmer Show as well. I know you've been been out there and been outspoken and uh, a great advocate for agriculture. Thanks for speaking out. Thanks for talking about what you're doing, and good luck going into this spring. Thank you. Talking about manure management on Ag PhD Radio today, we welcome your calls and questions at 844 844- 44 Ag PhD. We'll be right back. When it comes to my weed control, I know a head start can go a long way. That's why I spray early, so I can keep control all season long with a Roundup Ready Extend Crop System, the system that makes the difference. This is my field. Choose the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System for control of more weeds than any other soybean system. Featuring Extendamax herbicide with vapor grip technology to manage tough-to-control weeds, including up to 14 days of soil activity, along with the field-proven performance of Roundup Ready-to-Extend soybeans. Now you have the right tools to extend your weed control and extend your yield with the system that makes the difference. Learn how you can put the system to work in your field when you visit RoundupReadyExtend.com. Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Performance may vary. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Check local regulations for specific requirements in your state. Now that harvest is in the books, it's time to start thinking about your plan for the next crop. Using a pre-emerge herbicide in your soybeans is the best agronomic choice you can make to ensure control of tough weeds and grasses before they wreck the rest of your season. Authority brand herbicides from FMC keep your soybean fields clean from the start. Research trials have shown that applying a pre-emerge herbicide at planting can preserve up to 20 bushels or more of yield potential. With multiple options to fit your soil types, tillage practices, and weed management needs, Authority brand herbicides deliver the pre-emerge power to fight glyphosate-resistant weeds before they take root. How do they do it? Two modes of action keep resistance in check. Rule your fields with dual modes of action. It's not too late. Visit your FMC retailer or fmcagus.com to learn more. Always read and follow label directions, restrictions, and precautions for use. Hey, Bill, any advice to control tough weeds and rootworms? That's easy, Jim. Buy two, save three. Wait, for weeds and rootworms? Buy two, save three. Combine your Impact or new Impact Z herbicide purchase with a qualifying insecticide and save $3 per acre. Buy two, save three. That is good advice. For details, go to buy2save3.com. Impact, Impact Z, and buy two, save three are trademarks owned by Amvac Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact Z is a restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio today. 
We're talking about manure management, and I realize this is going to have a lot of different implications here. We we get into a few things, talk just a little bit about water quality. I'm hoping to talk to uh, Dan Anderson with Iowa State about that, too, a little bit later in the show. Uh, we, we look at liquid hog manure and what's going on there. Uh, certainly... Um, a lot of challenges last couple of years when it's been really wet, when growers have tried to be out there uh, at, at normal times in the fall and, and early spring. And so we've had to make some changes there, try and do a little bit more in-season application in some cases just to stay ahead of things. But it, it's been interesting. There have been a lot of farmers doing some work, uh, just doing different studies, comparing things on their farm with biological products in combination with manure, uh, with manure treatment options. So we'd love to hear if you're doing any of these things on your farm. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. Let's head up to Manitoba. We've got our friend Riley on with us. Riley, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good. All right. So talk to us about manure a little bit on your farm. How does that affect your operation? Um, manure has a very big uh, effect on our farm, and for the most part, it's positive. Um, we don't own any livestock ourselves, so it's all custom or well, larger companies that own the barns and try and sell the manure, and we uh, we try to work with them as best we can and make sure that uh, that it gets applied uh, when they want their lagoons empty, not not after they're too full. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Well, that was that was a challenge here the last couple of years. So, what kind of manure are you ending? Uh, what what kind of livestock operations are you getting manure from? So uh, all of it's swine manure. Um, we deal with two uh, finishing barns, and then the rest would be isoline or weanling barns or sow barns. So there's a very there's a big difference in the manure that we get from each type of barn. The finishing manure is by far my favorite. Um, there's just a lot more nutrients packed into that. And with the sow barns and the isoline barns, there's a lot more water that we're trying to pump on our fields just because they're washing their barns more to try and keep the disease out of it. Sure, sure. Yeah, the analysis of the manure is really, really important. When you talk about that for, for your farm, how many gallons difference would it be then if you've got, like you're talking about with the sow and the isoween barns having more water, that, that means a lot more gallons you got to spread, correct? Oh, for sure. So we're uh, on an isoween barn, we'd be spreading... 10.5 or like 10,500 all the way up to 15,000 gallons per acre and on our finishing barns we would be spreading 4 to 8,000 if there's been a lot of rain that year. Yeah. So there's a there's a vast difference. Yeah, that's that's a lot different uh tonnage to be carrying out there. So are you doing this with tankers or are you pulling uh drag lines? What what is the method that you're putting this out with? So it's all drag line, and for the most part, guys are running, they're injecting it uh, four to eight inches deep. Well, I guess as deep as I can convince them to, to put it in the ground. <laughs> Some, yep. Sometimes when you're dealing with a custom applicator, he doesn't want to put the, put it in the ground very far. No, nope, he's got uh, acres to cover and gallons to get used up, no question about that. Are you putting this out in front of corn, or what crops do you like to put manure out in front of? So we, we try and put it out all in front of corn. Um, if there's a seed bed issue, like uh, ruts or management issue on our end, we will put it in front of canola instead. Canola is also a high user of nitrogen, 
and phosphorus too. It likes it likes its phos. So um, that's that's what we do for the most part. But we're trying to put it out in front of corn because that just well, corn on manure makes a big difference for us on our farm. That's fantastic. We see, we see up to 30, 30 bushels difference just commercial fertilizer versus with manure. Yeah, I, I really prefer manure as well uh, versus just straight commercial fertilizer. We generally use a little bit of commercial as well, but uh, it, it's been a nice source for us too. And like you say, as long as you can stay ahead of these guys so they aren't desperate <laughs> so you can get it out <laughs> timely, that's a that's a good thing. Uh, Riley, I know uh, this was quite a year uh, where you farmed too. How was manure application? Did did things go as planned or was it a real challenge? So the first half of our barns we got out before the, well, I'm calling it a monsoon. We got 18 inches in three weeks wow. in fall. So that uh, that kind of messed with the whole application process. But our early, the early stuff we got on, we got it worked and it's that seed bed's ready to go. But uh, we actually had one barn that we normally don't get manure from come to us and say, hey, can you put manure on your fields? And this was the 7th of November and we have a manure application, well, we have a nutrient application deadline that's on the 10th of November. Wow. So they're cutting it close. They, the farmer that normally gets the manure still had all the soybeans on his field. So they came to us and asked us to put it on. And they just dribbled it on top and, like, let it freeze to the ground. And, yeah, we're hoping we're hoping it stays through the winter and it doesn't, we don't have too much erosion next spring or too much yeah, we don't we we don't want to leach it all away than the soluble parts, but yeah, yep. we're we're fighting with that a little bit. Yeah, definitely definitely not an ideal situation. That does happen from time to time. Uh, hey, Riley, uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing with us again uh, on today's show, and good luck here heading into the spring. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you guys next week. Outstanding. Sounds great. Yeah, we've got Ag PhD workshops coming up next week, and uh, if you're interested in that, you can check it out at agphd.com. Let's head to uh, Illinois. We've got Keith with us right now. Keith, how are you today? I'm doing great, Darren. How are you? Good, good. We're talking about manure application on the show today. How big a part of your fertility program is manure? Uh, it's it's a pretty big part. Um, we do a little bit of infertile stuff on the planter, and we've got some fields that we have a hard time uh, getting to with our manure tankers and stuff like that, so we use all commercial fertilizer on those, but um, for the most part, it's probably 75% anyway. Wow. Yeah, that's big. Is it mostly hog manure around you, or what, what kind of manure are you spreading? Uh, it's hog manure. Um, we've got a farrow-to-finish operation, and uh, every, everything is under a pit, and I, I caught a lot of what Riley was saying there, and it sounds like we're uh, we're fairly similar. We've got sow barns that the you know, we're putting 13 to 15,000 gallons an acre on it just because it's got wash water in it and stuff like that. And then the, the uh, finishing manure, we're probably running 6,500 gallons or 7,500, somewhere in that range, just kind of depending on the field and the, and the area. For our non-farm listeners, Keith, can you explain how, how do you come up with what the right rate is for each field? Well, for the most part, you know, of course, we test our, test our manure. Um, and, and see what the analysis of it is and, and uh, find out what the, the limiting factor in that or the limiting uh, nutrient might be in that, depending on what the levels of the fields are. And, and typically it's phosphorus. It's not, not always, but it usually is. And uh, we uh, limit it on that and just, and then so we'll test the field and 
And then, of course, depending on what crop we grow, and, and, and like Riley had mentioned, we, we try to do it in front of corn uh, just to capture that nitrogen usage. Uh, but that's that's basically what we do. You know, when you look at the, the value of manure, we see such a big part of that being nitrogen, so it does make a lot of sense to be out in front of corn. Uh, you know, as, as you're doing that, how do you figure how much is available this year versus how much is going to come available down the road? Well, usually I just I take the test word for it because uh, we use a Midwest Labs test, and they uh, you know they'll put on there what they think is available the first year, whether it be organic or inorganic nitrogen. And then uh, what I've been doing, on, especially on the stuff that I've been putting and applying in the fall, I've been going out and doing a, a pre-sidrous nitrate test before I put any commercial nitrogen on in the spring or, or side dressing uh, just to see where I'm at actually in the field. That's uh, sure. what I usually do. Yeah, I like the pre-side dress nitrate test. We got talking about that a little bit with uh, uh, some college students we were working with uh, just yesterday, and they were just surprised how cheap those tests are. They really aren't that expensive, but it sure gives you a good idea of where you're at for nitrogen. It, it does, and, I've, and I've, I've done it for the past couple of years, and I'm, I'm seeing kind of a, a trend, so it's, it's not just real sporadic as far as you're actually – we're actually getting some information that we can, we can utilize. That's fantastic. Well, Keith, thank you so much for sharing that. Really appreciate that. Good luck here heading into the spring. Hey, thanks, Darren. You too, and appreciate the appreciate the time. Bet. Talking about manure management on our show today. If you'd like to join the discussion, our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. How much yield did you lose the moment you planted your seed? Introducing the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Designed and built by a farmer tired of seeing yield loss from poor stands, the Germinator gives your crop the strong start it needs for maximum yield. Visit farmshopmfg.com. Ideal for herbicide applications, the ultra-low drifts large air inducted droplets were designed to eliminate driftable fines without sacrificing coverage. Its thick three-dimensional pattern creates multiple angles for the spray to cover the target. Hypro, helping you spray better. How do you know when to run your grain bin fans? There's an app for that. With the Steps GMS app, you can manually turn your fans on and off from your smartphone. You can also configure the Steps GMS app to automatically turn fans on when the humidity or temperature is ideal to keep your grain in top quality condition. Save yourself some time and take the guesswork out of managing your stored grain with the Steps GMS app. Contact us at stepsgms.com for more information. Bean growers continue to see yield loss from white mold across the Midwest this season. To maximize next year's crop, a white mold prevention strategy that includes Contans WG Soil Fungicide is a must for your farming operation. Applying Contans this fall to reduce the sclerotia in the soil is the most effective way to stop white mold at its source. Start a Contans white mold control strategy this fall or pay for it later in lost yield. We know balanced crop nutrition pays. AgriLiquid has the research, technology, and products you need to grow a great crop. Plus the expertise to give you a recommendation based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. AgriLiquid has the phosphorus, potassium, and micronutrient products necessary to deliver the best results from a solid fertility program. Visit agriliquid.com to find a dealer near you. Pasture should have two things, grass and cattle. No weeds, no brush. 
That's why Chaparral Herbicide offers the broadest spectrum weed control available. It controls weeds other products can miss, like buckbrush and Canada thistle. And less weeds and brush in your pastures means more forage, so you spend less on feed. Chaparral also suppresses seed heads, lessening the effects of fescue toxicosis, all while providing season-long residual control. Visit NoWeedsNoBrush.com today and learn more about Chaparral. What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce Herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio today talking a little about manure management. Next on the show, we've got Dan Anderson. He is with Iowa State University. Hey, Dan, how are you doing today? Great. It's finally starting to warm up and feels like a nice winter day. <laughs> yeah, that that's helpful. Now, if we can just get things to dry out a little bit this year, that'll be even better, right? <laughs> well, it's a new year. I'm hopeful that we left that much moisture behind us and we'll be back to normal. Okay, so with that, though, I've got two big questions for you. The first one is going to be water quality. Did we see any more uh, or a lot more issues this last year just with overall water quality in the state of Iowa because of all the flooding, all the extra rainfall that we had? Uh, So in relation to manure, was there a big difference this last year versus a normal year? Well, I I think that's that's an interesting question. When you look at water quality locally, sometimes the more water we get, we actually have better water quality within the state. We just get more dilution. But when you start thinking about a national scale and moving nitrogen or phosphorus down to the Gulf of Mexico, most of the time, even though the concentration goes down, the load tends to go up. So while local water quality still looks pretty good, uh, from our research work, our plots, we did tend to move a little more nitrogen through the soil from our manure plots than average, which isn't unexpected with that amount of rainfall. Now, when you say that, we talk all the time to people about drinking water quality, and drinking water quality is 10 parts per million when we start talking nitrate nitrogen. Are you finding a lot of problems throughout the state of Iowa where it's very high levels of nitrate, or is it just small amounts of nitrate, but like you say, there's so many gallons uh, running through that the total load amounts to quite a bit? Well, actually, with water quality in Iowa, it's, it's a complicated system, obviously, and it's not this way everywhere. But it, in the, under a typical cornfield, uh, during the growing season, there will be periods of the year where that tile drainage water is above 10 parts per million in almost every cornfield, uh, whether that's manure, commercial fertilizer. So we are going to see that water quality challenge from a drinking standpoint uh, almost everywhere in Iowa. Now, that doesn't always stay that way, and certainly the management choices we make, if we go to split application, if we grow yep. a cover crop, we can bring those values down pretty right. substantially. Okay, my other big question is crop rotation. When we start looking at crop rotation, normally people will put manure out and then they plant corn. That's kind of a standard thing in Iowa and South Dakota and a lot of the Midwest. But last year, because of all the flooding, all the wet ground, a lot of people had to put soybeans in there. Do you have any big issue if a, if a farmer wants to put soybeans in where they had put manure? Did you see any big challenges with that this last year? Uh, we did see some people doing that. And if you're doing spring manure application, it's easier to make that adjustment, and Iowa has some regulations about how you can do that. We recommend no more than 100 pounds of nitrogen from a liquid manure before soybean. Uh, sometimes with our higher manure applications where we weren't planning on soybeans, 
uh, we sometimes see more prevalence of lodging or, or white mold right. maybe on our soybean than, than we otherwise would. Uh, this year was certainly, you know, it was wet, and that's a, a mold-rich condition, and we did see a little issue with some of that on some of the places where that did happen. But overall, that change can generally be made, and, and that's really what you're looking for is just that, that more risk of lodging. And soybean uses a lot of nitrogen. Right. Certainly it can make its own. Uh, but if there's nitrogen present in the soil, it will preferentially use that. So it will soak up a lot of that nitrogen that we're putting out there. If we have to switch crop rotations, you know, it's still using most of that nitrogen that we put out in the soil. You mentioned cover crops also, and I know that's a growing segment of the market. What I often talk to people about, though, is why raise a cover crop? Why not just raise a longer crop, longer day crop, corn, soybeans, whatever it is? But, but the thing is, if you were to have something growing in the fall and all the way into the early spring, you're absolutely going to pull up a lot more of the nitrogen that you talk about there. So uh, just kind of talk to us about some of the people that are having success in Iowa with cover crops and reducing any nutrient losses from manure. Mm-hmm. And I think especially when you think about manure and cover crop systems, I see people doing a lot of different things in their manure system. So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all with using cover crops. Right. Uh, with our research, we've tended to put manure on and then drill our cover crop in afterwards. And I'll get people who ask me, why do you use that approach? And, and it's a simple answer. The farm we were doing the research at, and that was what we had available. They had a drill, right? And it was the easiest <laughs> method for us to incorporate a cover crop into sure. our rotation. Uh, but we have a lot of people who are flying cover crops on. Uh, the right weather conditions in that year, if we get some moisture after you fly them on, we get great germination, great growth, and, and do really well. And then I've seen a couple years where it's dry those one, two weeks while we put cover crops on, and we just don't get good germination or growth. So I think there's some, some hit or miss on that, and there's no perfect system. Uh, but we've seen a lot of people try both ways, and, and it just really comes down to what works best with how you like to manage your cropping rotations. And in terms of manure, uh, if you put that cover crop out there, it can look a little scary to come back and inject in it and tear it up. But with some of the low-disturbance knives, we've had really good luck with regrowth in the spring and that cover crop looking a lot more uniform and well-established, even though, you know, right after we put the manure on, it looks pretty disturbed. All right. Anything else you'd like to leave us with today, Dan, in terms of manure management in general? Anything that's kind of top of mind for you this year? Well, I think just given the the spring that we had last year, the fall that we had last year, I think one of the things that we're continuing to see some interest and pressure on is can we try and get more in-season application, maybe doing side dress on growing corn? So I think that's something interesting that we can look towards in the future. So as you say that, what are your biggest concerns there? Well, I think the biggest concern is it's a short window, right? So we can't rely on it for yeah. our actual manure utilization. Right. Uh, as a state, we're never going to get all our manure on there. And then anytime you're trying to put corn manure on growing corn, you're always going to be worried about compaction, equipment size, and how good we are at getting into the field during those field conditions. Because last year, it was wet. It was really <laughs> wet throughout the state right. of Iowa. And, uh, you know, that's a nice window to say, and maybe, maybe this year we get a nice window there. Last year, I think it rained every day when our corn was in that growth stage. Yep. Uh, I hear you. We farm quite a bit of ground, too, and we went through a lot of those exact same challenges. Well, we've been talking to Dan Anderson. He's with Iowa State University. Dan, thanks a lot for the time today. Appreciate all the information. Thanks for having me. You bet. All right. Well, it is time now for the Ag PhD Mailbag. It's the mailbag. All right, Brian. Got a challenging question here from a high school student in Wisconsin. Uh, this is from Sydney. She said, "I'm working on an ecology project, and my assignment's to come up with an issue and find the solution." So I decided to give my speech about how genetically modified crops might help reduce the usage of pesticides. I was wondering if you'd help me by answering just a few questions. First, what are your general opinions on using pesticides or chemicals? And can you give me some examples of how overusing or misusing them could impact the environment? 
Well, first of all, no farmer, including us, wants to use any pesticide at all. We would love to have uh, the fact of we plant the corn or soybeans or whatever crop we're raising. There are zero weeds out there. There are no diseases. There are no insects, zero competition. And all we have to do is plant it, and we come back a few months later, harvest it, and go cash the check. That would be super fun. Unfortunately, that doesn't exist in the real world. Mother Nature is constantly fighting us with all these pests, so we need to use pesticides. And I have no qualms about using pesticides other than the money, because most of the pesticides we use are ridiculously safe to human beings, to the environment, to the crop. Uh, But certainly, yes, if the wrong product gets used in the wrong situation, there could be crop damage, there could be environmental issues. We just don't see a lot of that, but there is certainly the risk of that, depending on the pesticide you're using. Do you have any examples where a genetically modified crop might require more pesticide use than a non-GMO, or do they generally help reduce pesticide usage? They generally help reduce pesticide usage. The only the only thing I could think of if is if let's say we came with something that was going to yield more. There was some trait where we say, oh, this is going to yield more. Now, today, we don't have any of that. But if we had that and you go, okay, well, now instead of 200 bushel corn, my potential is 300. Well, if your potential is 300 bushel corn, you might want to spray one additional time with fungicide, for example. Or maybe the crop gets taller or something like that. So you're more worried about disease or certain insects. I don't know. But no, I have really no no real-world examples today where there's a GMO crop where we're going to use more pesticides than normal. And last question, uh, when you're using a BT crop, so you don't have to spray insecticides, for example, yep. are there other bugs that are out in fields that it's a real benefit for by not having to spray? Well, I can think of the beneficial insects. So there would be some beneficial insects that would kill, say, spider mites. Or, I mean, think about ladybugs and soybean aphids. If we could ever get something that would give us some control of soybean aphids, well, we wouldn't have to go kill the ladybugs, maybe. I mean, there, there are... Yeah, there are lots, I, of, advantage, lots right. of advantages there with beneficial insects and leaving them in the field yes. to hopefully control some of the bugs so we don't yes. have to spray. Hey, Sydney, thanks for the questions and good luck on your project. One more quick one, Brian. This one comes from Craig. Uh, he said, I've heard you talk about the phosphorus to zinc ratio. Could that ratio actually be too low? Sure. I have some that are down to six or even eight to one. Oh, we have some that are two to one, three to one, and you can see our yield go up as we get that ratio a little bit better. So we had just overdone it on zinc. We like experimenting, and yes, you can push it too far. Yeah, you certainly can. Just like everything else, there there can be too much of a good thing. You want to make sure you have plenty of phosphorus out there and And yeah, I think that 10 to 1 ratio is a pretty good target to shoot for. Thanks for the question, Craig. Really appreciate that. Thanks to you for listening today. Please join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio. And now, stay tuned for Rob Sharkey and Shark Farmer Radio.